Central Services. Central Services. Oh, yes. You rang, sir. You rang, sir. Trouble with your air conditioning. Air conditioning, sir. Uh, no, it's, 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 uh, all right. It's, um, it's fixed. Brazil, 1985, a film by Terry Gilliam, uh, is the film we're going to be talking about today. And Brazil is a dystopian future black comedy, which merges sort of a 1940s fashion aesthetic with a 1980s imagination of bad 1940s imagination of technology. Uh, And it features a world almost entirely overrun by bureaucracy gone wrong, bureaucracy taken to its most illogical extreme. And in this world, we have Sam Lowry, a low-level information clerk who is possessed of very little ambition, but a great deal of fantasy life. And the combination of a typo in an official form and his spotting a woman he had only dreamt about sets off a chaotic escapade in which he finally experiences all of the flaws in the system he lives in. Hello, this is Cinema Gadfly. I'm your host, Arik Devins. Joining me this week to talk about this film is my friend Alan Pike. Uh, Say hello, Alan. Hi, how's it going? Good. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. (laughs) So, uh, welcome aboard. I chose this film for you because you asked me to watch a uh, you were actually really weirdly specific, maybe the most specific person I've had so far. You wanted a sort of a, a black comedy with some action, uh, and I think you actually wanted post-1990, which I didn't deliver. Well, I just wanted something relatively modern, because I didn't want to watch something from, like... Because I find comedic things from a very long time ago I struggle with a little bit, so I, I thought that it would be it would go easier on me if it was something relatively modern, and, and this succeeded in that. I would say. It's it's certainly very true that comedy, more than perhaps almost any other genre, you can certainly find things to love in certain eras of old, really old comedy, if you go really far back, but there's certainly ages of comedy which just aren't funny to us anymore because we've, we've honestly, we've progressed past them in a lot of ways. I think comedy is a thing that has developed perhaps more than, uh, in my mind, other, other genres. At any rate, um, so... To start with, just as a general overview, did did you like the film? I, I thought it was pretty good. I was I was a little disappointed because it had been so hyped up. Um, I, anytime I would uh, hear someone mention this movie, it was like, oh, this is an amazing movie. How can you not have seen it? You like Monty Python. You like dark comedy. Like, this is a, a film you really have to see. Um, and... And so I was expecting to be like, oh, my God, this is hilarious. I'm laughing all the whole time. And instead, it was like it was interesting. It was fun. It kind of it was slow, (laughs) 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 which is often true for for, you know, the older movie it is, the slower it tends to feel. But um, so. So, yeah, I would say like a a mixed positive feeling about it in general. Right on. Okay. Um, Well, they can't all be home runs. And also, I think, you know, after I gave you this film, I sort of thought, about you know I was watching it again for the for the recording today and I thought it's not really a, a first watch kind of film in a lot of ways and that's something that critics even at the time talked about about it it's a very it's in some ways a very difficult film and and it's it is a comedy and certain parts I think are very funny but it's not Monty Python 
you know, you're not laughing from beginning to end. It's not, it's, it's, it's very darkly comic. And even when you get like Michael Palin from Monty Python is in this film, and I think he does a phenomenal job, but he's not, he's not quite the Michael Palin of Monty Python that you might expect. So there is certainly an aspect of this movie, which I think is, is difficult. And also, you know, I, I find even, even I, I really like the movie, but even I find some of the fantasy sequences interminable. So can we talk about the fantasy sequences a little bit? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's let's set it up a, just a little bit. So as I mentioned in the in the brief synopsis, um, our main character hero here, uh, the Sam Lowry, he's he's like a low level clerk who works in like some part of the ministry that runs things, and his his job seems very dead end and very boring. Although I think that's at least at the beginning, exactly where he wants to be. But he has, like, an incredibly rich fantasy life, starting out, I guess, at night, and then eventually he's just basically daydreaming the entire time. But he, in his fantasy life, he plays some sort of, like, winged savior who fights a samurai and stone monsters to rescue a, a lady. Yeah, a damsel uh, in distress. She might be in distress, well, yeah. She's, yeah, she, she doesn't seem that distressed, but he definitely interprets her as being in, in distress and needs to be saved. She's, like, literally in a cage, and these these sequences interspersed throughout the film. There's got to be five of them at least, but I think maybe six or seven. Where just sudden things are happening at whatever pace, which you know it's it's a two and a half hour movie, so it's a little slow as it is. And then it's like, okay, now we're in this dream world, and people's dreams aren't necessarily that interesting anyway. And this is a fairly stereotypical like a dream that doesn't make any sense in the normal life. It's like he's in this kind of world that is just like a bunch of columns and it's pretty sparse and he's fighting things and he's trying to save this woman. But like nothing, not not much is like, like there's no narrative in the context of this because it's a weird dream. But they go on for a long time and they, ah, man, they drove me kind of crazy actually. <laughs> <laughs> so they are by far my least favorite part of the film. And I think, uh, my take on them is just that it's a Terry Gilliam movie, oh, yeah. and he he just needs to have something like that in his films. He just really, I think he just really enjoys making those things. Yeah, that's just clear. Yeah, I don't know if you read anything about the history of the film, but when he delivered the final product, uh, his studio that he had, so he had gotten the 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 deal to do this because of Time Bandits, which was like four years earlier and was wildly successful and so he had gotten this deal to make this film and they had agreed on a specific length of the cut he was supposed to deliver and the the cut he delivered was about 12 minutes longer than that and so using that loophole in in his contract the studio had declared that this film was um not uh acceptable to him in in either the ending the length or a lot of the tone and like dramatically and ruthlessly cut it creating a version i didn't send you called the love conquers all version and given that you've seen the entire film i think you can imagine how that one probably ended but yeah i i read about this a little bit and at first i saw like oh universal said the cut was no good and they wanted to make a new cut i'm like well that doesn't really surprise me i I could i would cut this movie differently probably but then i read about their cut i'm like well that also sounds horrible yeah which is which is is to change the ending which we don't necessarily want to like totally spoil because there's probably some people who are listening who haven't heard it but uh i at the ending as it was is not like a stereotypical hollywood ending necessarily but i really that was one of my favorite things about the film was the way that it ended yeah i love the ending i absolutely love the ending and so they changed that in the in the sort of unauthorized attempt to to make the movie even worse i guess <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a fascinating history because he he got around it by um 
essentially against his contract screening the film underground for like a bunch of prominent LA critics who then gave him a major award thus putting the the sort of PR pressure on the studio to uh release the film with the cut that he wanted or something close to it. I think the final release cut is like 130 something maybe 132 and then the version I sent you is 142 but I I do agree that this could have been a much more effective film if those dream sequences had just been shorter. I mean, I think you need to have them to some extent because they explain sort of the character's otherwise very hard-to-understand motivation to essentially destroy himself uh, in some fashion or at least put himself in the crosshairs of the society he lives in for this woman he knows nothing about and has never met, um, the woman of his dreams who he encounters in real life. And I think without... Uh, understanding that he's been kind of obsessively dreaming about her, you, you might not sort of understand his motivations, but those were really long. Yeah. And I think they could have been a lot, a lot shorter. Making them, making them repetitive is fine because it gets across that point, but yeah. It also, you could imagine them, I, I think, I think your, your read on it, the original read that it's just Terry Gilliam being Terry Gilliam and you can't not do that makes sense to me. Oh, I haven't seen most of his films, but even Monty Python, there'd be like, oh, this is a funny, interesting sequence or whatever. And then this weirdo, uh, like stop motion, random, absurd sequence would go on for like eight minutes where like, it's not ridiculous enough to be funny, but it's not sensible enough to to do anything narratively and it's just like random stuff happening and you're like well yep terry gillen's just uh doing one of his things that he does going on a bender absolutely all right so let's let's talk a little bit perhaps about the sort of the the themes from from this film because i think uh i actually just wrote about the film for my my blog today so um the the themes that I found in the film are, are very fresh in my head. So I wanted to kind of touch on a few of those. And I think, so uh, as I mentioned in that uh, review, some of the, some of the commentary about the film, especially from the time that it was released, uh, spends a lot of time sort of comparing it to George Orwell's 1984. And while I can see why they do that, I think that's reductive and pretty inaccurate because 1984 is a, movie about the uh, incredible um, success and scariness of surveillance state as it as a fully realized machine for control like the 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 character in 1984 is rebelling against a system that there is virtually basically no uh, possibility he will uh, defeat and the control of the system is almost total and perceived as being extremely competent whereas in this film the bureaucracy that that runs this system is completely and totally chaotic and almost completely inept and incompetent, right? Like, like the nothing functions correctly at all. In some ways, the bureaucracy uh, also reminds me of idiocracy. If you've seen that, I haven't, but go ahead. So it's a, it's Mike judge. uh, It's, I don't know, late nineties, I think, but it's what happens if, uh, mankind doesn't evolve for the next thousand years because only the dumbest people are having kids and smart people aren't. And so this is what we, we sort of, for whatever reasons in the film, end up in this world where uh, the entire government is sort of like, you know, a very different feel to it because it's ridiculous and people have Pizza Hut tattoos on their faces and stuff because everyone's really dumb. But this whole <laughs> idea that the bureaucracy is kind of taken over, even though it's really bad at what it does, but everyone just sort of accepts it and it's deep layers of, of ridiculousness. And it kind of reminded me of that as well. Yeah, I think that's that's a strong comparison like so the the you know his everything seems to be falling apart 
right? Their technology is ridiculous. Like they've got the they've got like the computer screens that are tiny, and then they've got other screens that are magnifying screens so that they can see the tiny screens, right? They've got it. Just feels like what would happen if it well, and one might argue is happening if bureaucracy was completely unchecked and that everything had to go through uh, proper procedure and forms taken to its like extremely absurd limit it results i think in a society where everything is broken everything is falling apart nothing can be fixed nothing is adequately maintained right it's like it, it, it's just completely uh ridiculous but also very scary because the whole the whole plot of the film is starts off with a with a typo right like the bug falls into the typewriter and someone's mr tuttle is mr buttle and and everything that happens in the film results uh, from this one essential failure. And I think in a system where people are completely ignored and just whatever the paperwork says is true is true, that's not only plausible and likely, it's inevitable. That mistakes happen. Uh, there's always a human element. There's always a random chaotic element, or in this case, a, a fly element, I suppose. And that that will lead to... Uh, absolute chaos for the people involved but have no effect whatsoever or almost no effect on the system as a whole yeah that was definitely the whole the feel and the um the exploration of what such a bureaucracy would look like and what such a society would look like is the most interesting thing about the film to me and i think reading about it and talking to people about it i think that's the thing that sticks with people when they think about having seen it years ago and they talk about like oh yeah it's just like brazil they're not talking about the dream sequences they're not talking about you know some of the other things in in you know or the weird love story and the motivations of those characters they're, they're really thinking about this world that gilliam has created that sort of explores okay what how, you know what is it like if we take this to the not the super competent 1984 bureaucracy to its extreme but sort of the bureaucracy that we observe um is, is often fairly incompetent right so what does it look like if the people the bureaucracy is not necessarily even functioning for uh, a higher purpose because you know to some degree they do have this motivation to control the citizenry but actually for the most part even the really evil things the extreme things the bureaucracy does is are mostly to just try and cover up other deficiencies in the bureaucracy as opposed to even trying to accomplish anything um and they do it in a way that is like obviously like self-aware um and i find that i found that quite entertaining yeah it's like uh um ian holm has a great turn in the film as as uh as a main, the main character's boss and his entire motivation throughout the film is like they got a check they weren't supposed to get and they have to find a way to get rid of it and it's all like uh, you know, we can't be stuck with this paperwork. This has to move on. We just have to correct this error that was made. And, you know, uh, everything ha just has to be on paper. Like, uh, the, the character drives a ridiculous-looking car that gets destroyed er relatively early in the film and spends the rest of the film being told by various bureauc bureaucrats, you... What's going on with the with the paperwork for that? You know, they don't care that the car was destroyed. They just care that it's, like, on paper where it's supposed to be, right? So it's just like, again, yeah, like you said, the bureaucracy spending a lot of its efforts just to internally consistent can there's no word for that internally make itself consistent um is 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 pretty amusing uh i i saw i saw an interesting theory that i wanted to ask you about so there's one of the themes of the of the film is that that is that this society is is constantly under attack by terrorists right and that that they're being bombed by terrorists and and bombs go off constantly throughout the film, and people are, like, so used to it, they don't even necessarily look up from their dinner. The waiter puts up a little screen to just sort of <laughs> let them be able to more easily ignore the wounded and the flames. Right. So 
in the in the booklet that comes with the film, the critic who wrote about it for Criterion uh, speculated that there actually are no terrorists and that that this is just the incompetency of their um, maintenance and that these this is that the terrorism angle is just a uh, um, a straw man for like the public to 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 feed off of so that they don't question the complete and total ineffectiveness of their government and I thought that was that was a really interesting take I don't know if I agree with it necessarily in terms of the actual film but like as a concept I mean we certainly know that that's you know definitely not something any actual government in the real world has ever done or is doing right now right <laughs> yeah that's interesting I think that's one of those sort of theories where you know it's a uh, it's more interesting than it is likely to be true because I feel like if that was intended that it's actually pretty funny and that I didn't notice anything even remotely hinting that that those explosions had anything to do with sort of the ducts and the other ridiculous uh, sort of trappings of the horrible maintenance of the world that they were in, uh, and that it would have been pretty easy to drop, like, a little hint about that. Um, and I don't know, you've seen it multiple times. I mean, you you can recognize it more so. But I definitely feel like that would fit with this sort of general theme that it's mostly a snake eating its own tail, and that they're, the actual conflicts in this world uh, are almost entirely generated by this infinite loop that they're in of trying to resolve their own conflicts that, that are mostly just based on the government's in- incompetence. Yeah, I found, I think, I found the fact that the only quote-unquote terrorist that we actually encounter in the film, for sure, is uh, is the, is the is, uh, Robert De Niro's character. And his terrorism is to repair things that are broken without filing the proper paperwork. <laughs> this is the most devious person that, that, that and the government is like trying to track him down and arrest him for this oh they are intensely interested this is actually almost the thing they're trying the hardest to do that we can see <laughs> yeah yeah they're they really really need to find this guy because he is just making a mockery of their system and i think in, in the context of a society that is entirely based on bureaucracy and paperwork what honestly what could be more terroristic than someone who's Showing actual skill and ability to get things done outside of the system that if they question at all, you know, will just completely destroy their entire society, right? Or, you know, the entire s- structure of the bureaucracy of their society, right? If if, if you can just go around fi- fixing people's stuff, I, I, I mean, wh- what's next? <laughs> if you don't fill out your 27B-6, then everything's just going to be completely destroyed. Yeah, I, there's just no way. I really loved uh, Robert De Niro's... Uh, role, which was quite small in the scheme of it, but that was the one character that I quickly, immediately was like, okay, you're interesting. I want to see you. I'm interested in seeing what you're going to do next. I find you entertaining. Like, all the other characters. I mean, Sam had his moments where I'm like, okay, cool, yeah, you're competent. This is, you know, I you know, I am empathizing with what you're doing, but most of the characters, most of the time, I was like, I don't like any of you. <laughs> Which I think is intentional, <laughs> but it makes it harder to watch the film. It's true. I like Bob Hoskins' sort of evil repairman, but I just like Bob Hoskins a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'll buy that. It's a small role. It's a small role, and I think it's one where I, I, uh, I've I appreciated it more on subsequent watchings. Because he's just, from the first time you see him, he just comes off so creepy. And the guy he's with comes off as so, so creepy. Oh, yeah. And I, I do enjoy that. I think... It is really interesting. I especially like sort of uh, what happens to Robert De Niro's character uh, with the with the uh, paperwork later on in the film. I mean, that's pretty pretty dramatized. It's kind of where 
fantasy crosses with reality later in the film. Yeah, well, that's that's the kind of thing, like, when it was happening, that scene with the paper and towards the end, I was like, okay, come on, this is ridiculous. Like, what is what is even happening? I was getting fairly annoyed at the film at that point, but then the way that that's resolved, I think, made me completely forgive it and then be glad it was there. Like, it, it worked out. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, again, it's a complicated film, and I think it's one that, it does reward subsequent viewings. I think it's certainly a flawed masterpiece if it's a masterpiece at all, but it's it's it it's full of interesting ideas. And I think uh it's a perspective that is in line with kind of my own viewpoints on sort of the future, quote unquote the future. I mean, I've always thought that the future is likely to just be a, a dirtier, more noisy, you know, louder, crazier version of the present. Like I don't I don't think we're heading I don't personally think we're heading towards some sort of you know, golden age, you know, Star Trek, uh, everyone is in peace future. I think it'll look a lot like now, at least in the relatively reasonable, you know, sort of uh, achievable, you know, when we'll all still be alive future. It just seems more likely to me that it'll be pretty much like now, but only, you know, crazier, dirtier, louder, more full of ridiculous things, you know, more people doing things that like, you know, maybe not Pizza Hut tattoos on the face, I hope, but. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting is that the the aesthetic of what they they portrayed technology and society to be like in the film was like like you said it, it comes off as what would a 1940s film about the 1980s be like uh, <laughs> even though it was filmed in the 1980s so like there's these tiny CRTs which is like kind of right and they have computers but the computers are we different than the computers would be in the 1980s and, and these sort of things. But w- one thing that I, I thought was kind of interesting is that, uh, like, this term paperwork, um, like, in our actual society is going, is, is reducing. Like, even, like, I spend nominally a lot of my job is paperwork. I run a app design studio, but I spend less and less time, like, interacting with paper, that's for sure. But also, like, I feel like, maybe I'm just getting better at avoiding it, but I feel like over time that software is making it a bit easier for people to not necessarily have to go through as much uh layers of bureaucracy for things like i wanted to change something about my taxes and i just like went on a website and was like click click and like a year 10 years ago i would have had to call and wait on some queue and then talk to a human being about like oh well you need to fill this they were gonna mail you something you need to sign it and stuff like that so i feel like that there's some hope for bureaucracy not just yeah, getting worse and worse over time. Maybe actually getting better. So not to not to put you on the spot at all, but I I will say that I think that it's possible, and I think this was reflected actually very accurately in the film that we are uh, living in a a bisected at least world where for those of us who are uh, inside the machine in some level, and by that I mean like n- you know we don't work for some fictional ministry of information, but some level of economic prosperity, some level of technological competence, some level of education, whatever kind of line you want to draw, that I think you're right. I think that uh, certainly the amount of things we have to quote-unquote deal with are are decreasing rather than increasing. But I wonder, you know, it, at the same time, you know, uh, like if you are living in poverty or you are struggling to get by or you're just like very solidly sort of like lower middle class like the family at the beginning of the film who who where the dad gets arrested – I don't know if that's true. I think it might actually be harder and harder and harder uh, to get by. And when you want it, when you when you want to do anything that's not explicitly supported by the uh, society as a as a sort of a golden path, it might actually be harder 
in some ways for those people. I think you're right that the physical paper is perhaps less, although certainly at places like the DMV, I'm not sure they've quite quite got that memo yet. But that, and it, hopefully it won't be an actual memo by the time it actually comes. But I wonder if if you know, so because like for instance, like when he shows up at work in, in his in the job he starts to film in, he's like super crazy searched, right? Everyone's being searched. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then when he shows up, and then I, 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 when I'm flying, you know, that happens to me, and that happens to me probably more than uh, many people I know, you know, for whatever reason. Um, and then uh, when he gets the better job um, later in the film, there's no – he's completely blessed. And I look at people who have, like, TSA pre-check or something like that, which I believe is quite expensive, and you have to go through quite – well, I don't know, quite expensive, but you have to go through – hoops to get and you know you have to prove various things and if you've ever been convicted of a crime for example i think it's probably impossible uh which a large number of americans uh you're canadian but a large number of americans uh have been that you know that we're we're making it easier for blessed people and making it potentially the same or harder for non-blessed people it's just a thought yeah i think that's actually i mean i think the trend overall for both groups is probably towards down even though there may be some minimum but definitely it's a lot harder for people who like if you read about uh or even just like listen to the npr episodes about some of these entitlement programs like oh okay well income supplements for low-income families or people with certain disabilities and stuff like that there often are these barriers um that are kind of intentionally put there to make it so that they reduce the number of people who are claiming this thing uh nominally because the the you know, you should only have to, you know, you should only be getting it if you really deserve it. But also because like, well, you know, if we can put these little hoops in the way before, especially when it's coming down to something that's actually consuming resources, getting some sort of benefits or things like that. Um, so I, th- I think in those sort of circumstances, it's definitely way worse. People who need to depend on government programs more uh, than, than maybe middle class or our upper middle class folks do. And definitely from what I understand, it's far worse in a lot of like, uh, developing economies, uh, not necessarily like ones that are like really, really rough where like they don't even necessarily have the mechanics of government, but like a country like India where, you know, there's, there's so much bureaucracy and there's so much government for a billion people, but it's not quite <laughs> entirely computerized yet. Uh, and, and, and a lot of it, is, there's little bits of corruption and local interest that, oh, well, in this city, in order to open a pizza shop, first you need like a license to cook anything and you need a license to have employees and you need a license to have this and this and this. And each of the people who give all those things uh, have an interest to make it difficult because partially because they want to get the sort of bribes to, to grease the, the way. So, um, they didn't discuss or even show much in that um, in that angle as far as like the sort of existence of bribes. But my understanding is that in societies where paperwork becomes so severe like this that it's hard to get anything done, that that kind of tends to bubble up pretty quickly. Is that people who have the means to uh, put fifty dollars down with their their piece of paper suddenly find that they don't need a stamp and that they can process it right now? Yeah, the only allusion to that in the film was sort of that that he gets promoted because his mom is rich and well connected. But I don't think it's, it's sort of implied that the guy is a friend of his father's and that he's kind of like blessed in, in terms of name and, and, and station as opposed to necessarily uh, anyone paying anyone specifically like for a bribe. But I do think, you know, I, you know, I live in San Francisco and if you want to open a place that serves alcohol in San Francisco, it is virtually impossible. And the forms and the cost 
is astronomical. Like I think, you know, in most uh, cities in the United States to get a liquor license is either either free or in the hundreds of dollars. I think it's something like half a million dollars now in San Francisco. And there are no new licenses. You have to acquire one from someone. And then there's this group called uh, um, ABC, which is like the uh, people who oversee the um, bar stuff. And they're constantly showing up and saying, oh, you haven't filled out this proper form properly. So your patio has to be shut down for three months while you go through this crazy review. I mean, I think uh, bureaucracy is still absolutely a tool that's being used in in our society as a way to um, prevent uh, things that people don't want going on or, or, or various other methods of I think control is probably a strong word, but, you know, influence. And I, I also think that incentive uh, incentives for, like, as you mentioned, government programs are just very differently aligned than, like, a, a private business where, uh, for the private business, they're incentivized by, uh, you know, uh, getting your money or, or succeeding in some fashion, whereas perhaps with a government program, they're incentivized um, by their mission, but also by... Uh, everything being done quote unquote correctly and I think uh, if you add ineptitude and uh, stupidity and um, overzealousness it's not that hard to to draw a line from uh, this film but from our current reality and and this film and I say that as someone who is a pretty strong believer in government programs in general yeah I think that yeah I'm also in BC and where I'm in Vancouver, the liquor licensing thing is also ridiculous. Um, I think for most of the circumstances where we see the bureaucracy and paperwork going down are the circumstances where there's things that affect everybody in their normal day to day life, um, which is a lot of what we were seeing in, in the film. Um, and I think, uh, the, the film actually kind of alludes to the problem, which is at the very beginning, they're talking about like, oh, well, the Ministry of Information only takes 7% of the GDP of the entire country to just like do all of our paperwork, right? Which is like ridiculous. Like that's more than any industry almost in, in a modern society. But the that force, the fact that it's very expensive to have actual people doing all these things is a lot of what has driven the... Uh, automation and reduction of the hoops that m- that the hoop the hoops that everybody needs to jump through um that just for going day to day and getting your air conditioning repaired or whatever um which thank god the government doesn't actually do with that particular <laughs> thing <laughs> otherwise it might look something like it does in the, in the film but the the general uh trend has been towards hey look at all this money that we're spending um filling out forms at the CRA or at, at the IRS, you know, look at all these tax forms that we're dealing with. If we can just make it so people can digitally submit these and then we can digitally um, assess them, uh, then we're going to save this huge amount of money, which we can either spend enforcing tax laws better or we can just have a lower budget or there's various things they can do with money. And um, that I think that's the force that's most likely to prevent a uh completely uh interminable amount of uh, bureaucratic growth oh absolutely and i think uh, the other positive difference between what i would view as as our society and, and their society is that i don't know if you remember but early in the film there's like an, an infomercial for uh making the du- everyone's houses are like have these giant ridiculous ducts for the for the heating and cooling system which is a, a large part of the plot and there's like an infomercial for prettier ducts yes and (laughs) and i thought to myself okay so we're not solving the problem of like better technology removing the need for the ducts instead we are making the ducts prettier uh (laughs) because the ducts you know we can't so i think that um our actual society's sort of desire to improve our technology and um 
you know, that can go astray too, as we see with like the quote unquote disruption uh, sort of a, a scene where it's companies are justifying pretty loathsome behavior in the name in the nature of well, we're di- we're this is we're disrupting something like well, but like I think um, uh, our technology is certainly significantly better than the technology in this film, and um, I think an over reliance on that is a mistake. But we we don't have giant ducks in our houses, which is nice. Yeah, and I think that the general idea of centralized, like what things need to be centralized in a government for them to work and what things don't uh, is what's keeping us from having our uh, our heating and cooling entirely made out of ridiculous ducts um, in that we, we realize that maybe actually it's okay if individuals uh, deal with their own heating and cooling and that the government maybe just focuses on like emergency services and like education and things like this. <laughs> as, as opposed to the emergency services in the film where yeah. you have to call between certain hours. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Which, oh man, there have definitely been people running for various offices that would have loved that. Uh, so, cool. Um, did you have any other thoughts you wanted to get in on this film before we before we wrap it up? I think we we hit most of the interesting things. I loved that the 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 theme song, which I guess is the theme song, the little motif that goes through the whole song. Yes, um, I recognized it as the Wally trailer song um, oh. because the teaser trailer for Wally, which is a, a, a trailer I'm very fond of, it kind of talks about the some of the history of Pixar and then kind of teases that Wally is coming, uses this don't, 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 this little thing. And, and it's from that, and even the version from Brazil. Um, I don't know why they chose that because uh, it's very different feeling, I guess, future. I don't know. Um, but uh, and so I recognize it in the film and I, I quite enjoyed that little that little loop. I, th- I thought it was good. Awesome. Yeah, no, the the theme song, you know, Bra- Brazil as a film has very little connection to Brazil. It's really just all about this this song that they use, but it is a great one and and I do I do enjoy it. Yeah, and the whole time I was just like I still have no idea why it's called Brazil. Actually, weirdly, I for year like at first when I would hear about this I hear about Brazil and people say like, "Oh my god, this Brazil is like so ridiculous. Like it's like Brazil or whatever." And they would say this sort of negative thing. I'd somehow switch in my head that this, that this uh, film that people were talking about was uh, the film Cannibal Holocaust. Have you ever heard of this? <laughs> like the most offensive yes. film in all time. And it was filmed in Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> and they like kill a turtle when they're filming or something. And so I hadn't seen that either. And I knew they were like roughly, I think Cannibal Holocaust is older, but like these, that film somehow for a while I had thought was called Brazil. And that when people are like, oh, it was terrible. It was like Brazil. I'd be like, oh God. <laughs> That is hilarious. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, for joining me today, Alan. Can you tell the people uh, where they can where they can find you on the on the internet? Yeah, sure. So um, you can read the stuff I write. I have a website, alanpike.com, A L L E N Pike, uh, or you can find me on Twitter at a Pike. Cool. And uh, you can find me on Twitter as always at Cinema Gadfly. And uh, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever fine podcasts are, are found, mostly. Uh, and, you know, uh, rate us, love us, leave reviews, whatever, all the things I'm supposed to say here at the end. And we will come back uh, next time to discuss the film that Alan chose for me. Okay, have a good day, everybody. Don't you worry, love. We'll have everything ship shape in a jiffy. That's it. Nothing to worry about. Right. It's Tuttle downstairs who can worry, eh? Tuttle? His name's Buttle. There must be some mistake. Mistake? <laughs> we don't make mistakes. <laughs> Bloody typical. They've gone back to metric without telling us. Hey, man.
from Brazil, eh? I never thought Terry Gilliam would do a movie about waxing. I guess this falls into the same category as Chris Rock doing a movie about good hair.